It's my pleasure to welcome uh, someone who is no stranger to our neck of the woods. Uh, that's Rabbi Bradley Shavit Artson. Welcome. Rabbi Artson holds the Abner and Rosalind Goldstein Dean's Chair of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. He's the Vice President of the American Jewish University, where he teaches several courses. Rabbi Artson received his Doctorate in Philosophy and Theology at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institution of, uh, Jewish Institute of Religion, and focused on the integration of science and religion, as well as advocating process theology. He's a cum laude uh, graduate of Harvard University and was ordained with honors at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. After that, he moved to Southern California and served uh, congregation uh, Elat in Mission Viejo until he was taken a little further north uh, to what was then the University of Judaism and now the American Jewish University. Rabbi Artson is an author of numerous books and articles and is, as you well know, a popular speaker. We're in for a real treat as uh, we are blessed to hear him speak today about Teshuvah, turning, returning, changing, and becoming. Let's welcome Rabbi Artson. Thank you very much. It is a joy to be here, uh, a joy to look out and see so many familiar and beloved faces. Um, so I was thinking about what could one possibly say about tshuva that's new. And then I realized I'm a rabbi. Nobody expects me to say anything new. <laughs> Which shifts the question a little bit. The question is, what can I say about tshuva that's interesting? Right? And that's a harder topic. So there are two ways to do the whole tshuva thing. Um, one way that's safe and conventional, and one way that is risky and a little racy. Guess which one I've decided to do. So um, the first risky sound guy told me not to take this out of here. So this is my first act of breaking the rules. Um, and, and here's what I need us to do to talk about tshuva. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about tshuva that I heard yesterday. Then we're going to talk about physics and science which is going to move us into philosophy, and then we will round it out by looking at some sources which you have in front of you. You have that also because I wanted to give you a permanent souvenir that you could save and look at at your own leisure. And at the bottom, you have two uh, websites that you're welcome to go to, the first of which contains my written articles, and the second of which contains more podcasts than you could possibly entertain yourself with for years and years to come. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a podcast is, don't worry about it. So, um, you know that several years ago, President Clinton 
was involved in a scandal that involved loving Jews a little too much. <laughs> a sin of which I am never guilty, <laughs> having worked with you people for so long. <laughs> and um, so he responded in part of the aftermath of it. He had a meeting with 10 members of the clergy of different faiths. And they each had a minute to give him a sentence of advice. What should he be doing to repair himself from the damage that he had caused by his action? And the rabbi who was invited was a Rabbi Paley, who was the chaplain of Columbia University's Hillel. So when it got to Rabbi Paley, um, President Clinton said, Rabbi, what would your advice be? And Paley said, listen, in, in Jewish tradition, we have this thing called tshuva. And Clinton interrupted him and said, yeah, 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 I know about tshuva. Do you side with Rav Cook or Soloveitchik? <laughs> he was a smart guy, Bill Clinton. <laughs> Say what you want about him. Uh, so, so Paley said, well, Mr. President, I can have that conversation with you, but I can't have it in a minute. So the two of them actually got up and walked out of the room for five minutes to compare and contrast Soloveitchik's approach to tshuva with Rav Cook's approach to tshuva. Um, those of you who are my congregants are completely familiar with that distinction. I won't bore you by going into it again, and you can at some point just explain it to the people <laughs> who weren't at a lot. Jack, look like you agree with me for a moment. So, um, so that's the tshuva story. Here's the challenge of talking about teshuva. And it's going to get into how you look at the world as a whole. Most people in the West look at the world as though it is made up of dead things solid substances that interact by bumping into each other. So the primary category in Western thought is being. This table is, the floor is, the trees are, you and I are, and being is the primary thing that we are, and because we are, what we do has some interest, but it's secondary. Being is essential, doing is peripheral. That means that tshuva has this odd relationship to you because you are who you are. And so you modify how you manifest in the world, but you are who you are. And I want to suggest to you that while that is how Western people think about behavior modification and they think about themselves, I think it is profoundly wrong. So having been enlightened by process thinking, I want to share with you a radically different way. Those of you who are familiar with Eastern ways of thinking or with contemporary physics won't be entirely shocked by this except to see it brought home to tshuva. What if we're not solid substances? What if what we are are better described by the English concept of a process? You are like a stream of flowing water. That is to say, 
you are in a constant state of change, but you change gradually enough that there's something that is recognizably you in the different stages of the changing. But there is nothing that doesn't change. Everybody with me so far? Right? So we don't have an essence. You don't have an unchanging center that is, was, and always will be you. What you have is an always shifting pattern that changes across time. Okay. Now let me just play that out for a moment, uh, and we will get back to tshuva soon enough. If in Western thinking you want to say that the being is more important than the doing, so what trees do is less important than what trees are, I want you to do a mental experiment with me right now. Let's imagine we could separate being and doing. And let's imagine something that just is, but it does nothing, okay? It's all being, no process. How would you know that it exists? The answer is you wouldn't. The only way you know that something is, is by what something does. It's the doing that allows you to know the being. So it turns out, I think, that it's actually more helpful to prioritize the becoming. It's your interactions that let people deduce that you are. Right? No interactions whatsoever, they'll think you're Congress. <laughs> so, so let's then turn that around. And instead of thinking of the doing as what is the manifestation of the being, let's imagine that the momentary snapshot of the doing is what we call being. That means that what's real is fluid. And whatever isn't fluid doesn't really exist. Everything is in a constant state of change. Let's do one more mental experiment. I just want to make sure you're all on board here, and I want to make sure this isn't freaking you out excessively. Right? Let's take a look at those things that we consider the most stable of all. Let's think of a mountain range. So you pick whatever your favorite mountain range is. Could even be Saddleback, for all I care. Right? Pick a mountain. And now what I want you to do is I want to watch it, but instead of watching it over the course of 10 or 15 years, I want you to watch it through the miracle of time-lapse photography. I want you to watch it over 100,000 years. Now speed up that film. I want you to watch it over a million years. And what happens is your mountain becomes a wave. Your mountain moves as though it is water. The only difference between water and mountains is the time frame in which it takes to see their motion. Everybody with me on this? Right? So, so if what is most important about us is how we interact, 
what we do. And then what we are is just a momentary freezing of that film. Right? So when you drive by and you look at Saddleback Mountain, you're just looking at it isolated outside of time for an instant. If you were really watching it in the flow of time, it wouldn't look static at all. Because, and here's where science and Judaism come together, because the world is created anew every instant. The wor I'm not saying something religious, I'm saying something in science right now. The world is created anew at every moment. Think on the level of subatomic particles. There's nothing stable about anything in this room, right? There are, at the very smallest level, quivering packets of energy that come together in recurrent patterns, but the content of those patterns is shifting all the time. The electrons that are in your body are leaving your body, going into the wood. They have no idea when they leave you and enter the chair you're sitting on. They don't think there's a difference. At an atomic and subatomic level, there is no difference between you and the object you're on. And there's no permanent you either. There's just a bunch of atoms zipping around, retaining some kind of current pattern at a larger macroatomic level that is identified as us at this level of physics. So maybe what we are is steadily shifting patterns of behavior that at any single moment can be viewed as being a person. But really what we are is the totality of what we are doing. Your heartbeat, your respiration, your biology, your cellular processing, the consciousness that emerges, your spiritual upwelling and flow, all of those together constitutes the becoming that is you. Okay? All right, so I told you this was not the standard introduction to tshuva. Because otherwise, tshuva makes no sense. It really makes no sense. It becomes this little uh, morality play that is frankly impossible, right? So the other way of telling you the tshuva story is you are who you are, but you have the capacity to decide how you're going to behave, and therefore you should make good choices. Let me just ask you candidly and honestly, how often does that approach work for you? Right? So I'll just remind you of that. When we walk into that room, chances are they've put a lot of highly processed carbohydrates laden with sugar and fat <laughs> on tables. Right? And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say to you, now make good choices. <laughs> and I'm willing to bet that the celery will still be here when we all leave. <laughs> That's how it gets presented year after year. We, unchanging essences get to decide to break with something. But I don't think that's what tshuva is. I think what tshuva is is an invitation to jump back into the river of life. It's an opportunity to recognize yourself not as some solid, unalterable essence, 
but rather as constant change swirling around personality. And in that process, tshuva becomes just another word for being alive, for being you, for being part of a cosmos which on some level you're never separate from, you're always part of. Okay, so, so now I want to go to answer, you're all waiting for the answer to the Clinton dilemma, um, not the get a different cleaner dilemma, the other dilemma. Um, and that dilemma is, if you didn't, by the way, catch that, really don't worry about it. <laughs> And that is, what is the Soloveitchik and Rav Cook divide? Rav Soloveitchik was a prominent Orthodox rabbi, um, descendant of a fairly prestigious uh, rabbinic clan dynasty, uh, taught at Yeshiva University for many, many years, uh, a generation of modern Orthodox rabbis raised as Talmidim, as students of Rav Soloveitchik. Brilliant man, written several great essays and commentaries to prayer books. He argued that teshuva properly understood means that you are no longer responsible for the previous bad choice you made. It's as if it no longer exists. So, I want you to not verbalize what I'm about to ask you to think, keep it to yourself, but I want you to think back to the most shameful thing you've ever done. And I want you to think now that in Soloveitchikian terms, that most shameful, awful thing you've ever done, if you sincerely repent of it, and you go through the process of real tshuva, then at the end of the process, you didn't ever do it. You never did it. As opposed to Rav Cook, who says that the process of tshuva is not one that erases your past, it changes the meaning of your past. You can never not have done what you did. But the significance of what you did, that can change so that the process of tshuva is literally one in which you take a sin and you turn it into a source of merit. I'm gonna say that again. You take a sin and you turn it into a source of merit. So for Rav Cook, it doesn't go away. It never goes away, you did it. But what it means flips from the negative to the positive. Now, you may be able to dope out from the way I'm presenting it, I'm on the Rav Cook side, right? I think that makes a lot more sense, and I also think that the invitation to pretend like you didn't ever do it is just actually setting you up to do it again, right? And life doesn't work that way. Right? We all have a history, and that history goes with us everywhere we go. Right? So you might as well deal with whatever it is you're going to deal with, because if you don't deal with it in this context, it will be waiting for you in the next context. 
Right? So tshuva, the turning part of tshuva, is instead of running away from whatever it is, turning to face it and working through it such that you achieve some resolution different than just avoiding it. All right. The last piece I want to put on the table before we look at sources um, is something that I've been reading about for the last couple weeks. There's a wonderful Hasidic commentary called Netivot Shalom. Netivot Shalom is from the Slonimer Hasidim, a sect that used to be in Slonim and are now in Jerusalem. Um, I suppose that's an upgrade. And, um, and their Rav, who passed away 10 years ago, has put out five volumes, one for each book of the Torah, and then two volumes, one on Midot, which are ethical characteristics, and one on Moadim, on the holidays. So he has a series of commentaries about Rosh Hashanah and about Elul, and of course, about Teshuva. And the intriguing comment I want to launch with is he says that we talk about Rosh Hashanah and we say, Hayom Harat Olam, today is the birthday of the world. Today the world is born. And he says, this is not a metaphor. This is the birthday of the world. The world is actually new. And I wonder, along with him, what it would look like if we walked into our sanctuaries on era of Rosh Hashanah, thinking not, I'm the same person I was this morning, but I'm now actually new. I'm new. And I come with a history, but if it's the world's birthday, then it's your birthday too, right? And everything is new. The people who wronged you are new. The people you love are new. Every relationship you've ever had is starting all over. It's like those etch-a-sketch things where you shake them and there's nothing there anymore, right? What would it mean if we walked into those sanctuary unburdened by the habits by the sheer weight of choices we had made in the past, if we walked in with the awareness of being, I'm going to use a phrase you don't expect to hear from a Rav, born again. Imagine how liberating that would be. Imagine how empowering that would be to let you say, I can become whoever I want to become. I can be whatever I want to be. Again, that ties back to the notion that what we are is what we do. And the consistent pattern of our doing becomes us. And once a year, we break the lock on our being and we re-enter a consciousness of becoming. All right. With that, I want us to look at some of these texts. The first one I wanted to share with you is from Vayikra, Leviticus 5.5. Um, and because I have the microphone and you don't, I will read these. Normally, if this were a smaller gathering, 
we would be engaging in interaction right now, so imagine yourself participating. When he realizes his guilt in any of these matters, he shall confess that wherein he has sinned. So what, according to Vayikra, is the key first step in the rectification of sin? So the first thing is you can't do tshuva for stuff you're not aware of. So let me just say to you now, if any of you were planning to send a blanket email blast to everyone on your address book list, saying, in whatever ways I have wronged you, please forgive me, let me tell you that that is narishkeit on stilts. Right? You can't do an email blast tshuva. You have to do it to individuals. And you can't just say, if I've offended you in any way, because then what you're really saying is, I don't think I have. I'm not aware of having wronged you in any way. Because let me tell you, if you knew how you wronged them and you sent them an email saying, if I've offended you in any way, you just wronged them again. Right? The only kind of tshuva is the kind that starts with an awareness. Ooh, I better apologize to that person for that action. Right? So um, if you're going to do that email blast blanket thing, take me off the list. Because <laughs> you're just going to piss me off, and then I'll have another thing to do a thing over for Yom Kippur. So, and I got enough already. So number one is you have to realize what you've done. What's number two? You have to confess. You have to confess, which the tradition says must be verbal. Right? So that can't be to yourself quietly under your breath. It has to be if you have wronged somebody, you need to acknowledge it verbally. You need to say, I did the following thing which I realize is wrong. Okay. So that's where Vayikra weighs in at the very beginning. Devarim, Deuteronomy. When all these things befall you, the blessing and the curse that I have set before you, and you take them to heart amidst the various nations to which the Holy One your God has banished you, a clear reference to Newport Beach. And you return to the Holy One, your God, and you and your children heed God's command with all your heart and soul, just as I enjoin upon you this day. Then the Holy One, your God, will restore your fortunes and take you back in love. God will bring you together again from all the peoples where the Holy One, your God, has scattered you. Okay, what's, what's the tshuva here? What's the dynamic here? What is it that we do to restore the relationship? Sorry. Action. So what does it say? What, you return to God, right? You heed God's commands with all your 
Now here's a place where translating really can trip you up. Right? So in English, the heart is the seat of emotions. And soul is this murky, mysterious Casper the ghost that's banging around inside your corpse. Right? It's why your corpse can move. Right? Both of those are mistranslations of the Hebrew. Right? So biblical Hebrew, the lev, is the seat of not only emotion, but also intellect. You think with your lev, too. Right? So there is no split in biblical Hebrew between reason and feeling. Right? That's a Western deviation, and it's actually false. I'm now going back to the science side. Those of you who have been keeping up on neurology and neuropsychology will verify for me that when people have brain injuries that damage the part of their brain that has to do with emotional processing, it compromises their reasoning capacity too. Reason is not separate from emoting. It is a phase of emoting and vice versa. Okay? So, so your lev is your emotional and rational capabilities. And your nefesh, which is translated as soul, does not mean what Western people mean by nefesh. It means the totality of what makes you you. That is to say, your history, your memories, your temperament, everything about you that is distinctively you, that's your nefesh. When God breathes life into Adam, the Torah tells us he becomes a nefesh. It's not that he has a nefesh, he becomes one. All right? So heart and soul here means you. With everything about you, when everything about you, you turn back to God. When you start walking once again on God's path, at that point, you are restored. Okay? Notice so far, nothing ritual about tshuva. Right? There's no liturgy, there's no choreography. None of the things that we Jews think about when we think about tshuva, what it has to do is recognizing you blew it, verbalizing that to the person who you messed up, and turning in sincerity from such behavior. From Shmuel, God gave him another heart. There's that born again thing again. Right? When you in your process of becoming, make a different series of choices, those choices shift you from the path you were on to a different course. And because you are the snapshot of the sum total of all your becomings, all your choosing, over time you become a different you than you would have otherwise become. From Isaiah, you'll be reading this one in your machsor. Your hands are stained with crime. Wash yourselves clean. Put your evil doings away from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Devote yourselves to justice. Aid the wronged. 
uphold the rights of the orphan, defend the cause of the widow. Come, let us reach an understanding, says the Holy One. Be your sins like crimson, they can turn snow white. Be they red as dyed wool, they can become like fleece. So there's Isaiah weighing in. Is he on the Soloveitchik or the Rav Cook side? No record of it whatsoever, or you take it with you and it gets changed. Sounds like Rav Cook to me, right? Because all of a sudden, what had been crimson, it's not like it disappears. It now has this bright whiteness to it. And white, I will remind you, in Jewish tradition is a symbol of joy. Right? So, so what had been a source of shame in Kabbalah, as in biology, red is the color of emotion, primarily of anger, right? And white is the color of joy. So what had been a reflection of rage and uncontrolled passion becomes delight, right? That's the promise of tshuva. That's the promise. And then another one of those wonderful comments. This is from Brachot. We're now moving into rabbinic literature. Brachot is the opening volume of the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud. This from the Bavli. A Baal Tshuva, someone who is constantly engaged in the process of Tshuva, should not consider himself distant from the level of the righteous because of the sins and transgression he committed. This is not true. He is beloved and desirable before the Creator as if he never sinned. In the place where the Bale Chuva stand, even the completely righteous are not able to stand. Elsewhere in the Talmud it says that the person who does Teshuva stands at a higher level even than the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. So what is that? What is that? How is that possible? You take some guy who's never done anything bad and you tell him that the person who did something awful and went through tshuva has now gone ahead of him in line, stands at a higher place. Why? That doesn't sound fair. Maybe because the person who's never done bad is not growing, is not changing, right? There aren't absolute measures is what I think this is saying. What this is saying is you never know what the challenge is for someone else. All you know is the force of the challenge you face. So all you can be measured against is not what it looks like if we catch it on film, to know the meaning of the action, I need to know how hard you're working to contain yourself. And you can't know that from the outside. You can only know that from the inside. Right? And so someone who is really sorely tempted and is able to withstand the temptation, that person stands on a much higher spiritual level than a person not tempted at all. I see that with my son all the time. Many of you know Jacob. Um, it's my horrifying duty to tell the people who used to be at Congregation a lot that he's now 19 years old, looks like a football quarterback, just like his old man. 
And, um, you know, I, I watched Jacob sitting in a classroom struggling to sit still for an hour. And I think, who knows the heroism that it takes him just to sit still for an hour, right? And how can you possibly compare that to someone who during that hour wrote an essay that will win a Nobel Prize? By human standards, the Nobel Prize winner, of course, did something much more significant. But from God's point of view, from the point of view of what does it mean, there's no way to know. Someone can dash off that brilliant essay effortlessly, and Jacob did something that took every fiber of his being. So partly what I understand Brachot is saying is don't measure greatness by externals. You have no way of knowing just by looking what something means. The only way to do that is from the inside, and the only one who you know from the inside is yourself. Which means then the extent of your primary concern can only be, are you doing what you can be doing? Worry less about what other people should be doing and focus on what you can know, your own behavior. That makes you a Baal Tshuva. Right? If you go through life saying, what could I be doing differently? How could I be responding differently? What could I bring to this that I've been withholding? That's the kinds of questions that makes you greater than a Kohen Gadol. From Sifre Devarim, a Tanaitic commentary to the book of Deuteronomy. You are as if newly created. What had happened in the past has already been forgiven. Now that's an interesting thought. As if newly created. So the first thing I need to ask you is what do we know about something that is as if? Right? What do we know about someone who you say, oh, he's like a father to me? What do we know he's not? Your father, right? It would be a little bizarre to say, dad, you're like a father to me. <laughs> right? So as if means not. Right? So don't hear this as saying, oh, this is taking the Soloveitchik side. This is not saying you're newly created. You're really not. But it is as though you are. It is ke'ilu, as if you are newly created. And then what happened was forgiven ahead of time. Why? Have you noticed how we start the penitential season? On Saturday night, we will have a ritual service that most Jews will blow off, right? Which is a shame, because it actually gives you credit for the whole, the whole month. Um, it's like it, a twofer, it doubles it right away, right? So at the very beginning of the penitential season, right before we start smacking our chest, we have a service, and what do we call it? Slichot, which means forgiveness. Well, that kind of gives the whole thing away, doesn't it? Right? But that's not coincidental, right? We enter knowing we're forgiven. Beforehand, forgiven, right? So the other thing I want to say is Western people, and now Jews to the extent that they think about such questions, radically misunderstand God's power. God is not a bully in the sky who wants to scare you straight. Right? God's love is so vast, so overwhelming, 
that you're forgiven before you even show up. All you have to do is show up, and you're forgiven. Right? Any of you who are parents know exactly what that feels like. Right? Before the kid has even started to say, I'm really sorry, you have to act like you're still really you know, stern and stuff. But it's a sham. It's a sham, because you're already done. Right? And that's what we're being told is true of God. Right? It's already forgiven. It's done already. Right? So, said the Holy One to Israel from Vayikra Rabbah, Midrash on the book of Leviticus. My children, if you turn this day, changing your bad ways, you will become new creatures, not the same people as before. Then will I consider you as if I had created you anew. And then shall you, newborn, be as the new heavens and the new earth, which I shall create. I find this incredibly inviting. Right? We're being told that you get to decide who you're going to be. In fact, the Slonomorov in Tivot Shalom says that the other thing that we call this day, we call it Hayom Harat Olam, the day the world is born, but we also call it Yom Hadin, the day of judgment. And the Slonomor asks a great question, which I'm willing to bet none of you have thought of before, it certainly hadn't occurred to me, which is, if everything is brand new, what the hell is there to judge? Right? It can't be a day of judgment if everything is new. You can judge that old stuff, but we're not those people anymore. And this isn't that world. So if everything has been born again, what judgment is there to be done? And the Slunmer answers it by saying, it's not God who's doing the judging. It's us. And the judging that we're doing is not about our past. We are judging what kind of future do we want to strive for. Picture what Rosh Hashanah would look like if you had that thought in mind. Right? It's not that you're going before the judge and he's going to issue a sentence. You know that already. You came to Slichot. You already got your, you know, you're fine. Take this to the clerk and turn it in and go home. Right? The judgment is yours. What kind of year are you going to create? Who are you going to be at the end of this year? And what do you need to start doing now to be that version of yourself? That's the judgment that's taking place. If you use your time productively in shul, in addition, of course, to listening to each and every word your rabbi says while on the bima. The time that he's not speaking, any cantors present? Fine. So any other time than when the rabbi's talking, use that time to collect the information you need for you to pass judgment. It's not God. God loves you. In fact, you need to know that because if you don't know that you're loved, you won't risk becoming who you can be. So you need to know that you don't have to earn God's love. You got it. 
And because you know you've got it, that makes it safe for you to risk becoming who you have the capacity to be. So it's your judgment and not about the past. It's about the future. The requirements of penitence are four in number. Penitence is a translation here of teshuva. The first, the abandonment of sin. Second, the feeling of remorse. Third, petition for forgiveness. And fourth, the giving of assurance never to repeat the sin. There's Rav Sadia being very helpful. He's great at making lists. And so there's his four-step list for what tshuva entails. We've already covered part of it. You can't atone for what you haven't stopped doing. You can feel guilt about it, but guilt is the opposite of teshuva. It is not a constructive emotion. Guilt is what we do instead of just terminating it. So you have to stop the behavior that is resulting in the need for tshuva. Once you have stopped that behavior, then you need to feel sincerely remorseful for having engaged it. Let me just give you uh, Rabbi Artson rant number 532. Everyone can start an apology very well. I'm really sorry I did X. It's at that point that most apologies go south because they're rapidly followed with, but here's why I did it. And by the time you finish the apology, you're suddenly responsible for having made them do that awful thing that they did to you. So that's not what Rav Sadia or the Torah are discussing, right? Remorse is not, yes, I shouldn't have done it and you made me do it. Remorse is, I shouldn't have done it, period. End of story. That's it. Nobody can make you do anything. Ever. People hate when I say that. But it's absolutely true. Right? So I will just enforce that by telling you a story some of you have heard me tell before. My stepfather's grandfather, his Zaidi, was a chassid in Częstochowa, which is in Poland. And there was a roundup. The Germans were rounding up the Jews to deport them to the camps. And they ordered them to show up pre-dawn at the train station. So he showed up like a good chassid, wearing his Shabbos clothing. Beautiful coat, fur hat, and a Nazi soldier barked the order to him, take off your Jew hat and your Jew shawl. And he said in Yiddish back, German, this is how I dress to pray and to die. And they killed him. He never got on the train. For me, That's a story of freedom. Freedom doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. Freedom does not mean there are no consequences. Freedom does not mean there aren't forces out there that constrain our choices. But it means no one can ever compel you unless you let them. He died a free man. 
You can always be free, and you can choose to give up your freedom. Right? So, when we feel remorse, the remorse is an acknowledgement of our freedom. Yep, I did something really awful, and I chose to do it. And then, finally, the assurance that you won't repeat it. The tradition teaches us, if you repent and say, well, if I do it again, next Yom Kippur will atone for me if I do it again, it does not atone. Okay. I think that's enough of sources for now. Um, you're welcome to study the rest on your own. Rambam, as always, is brilliant and very clear and very helpful. I want to just summarize and then I want to open it up for us to have a discussion. You, like all things, are really a series of events. And those series of events, if looked at in still photography rather than as a moving film, look like an object. But we are not. We are always in process. We are always baderech. We are always on the way. We're always becoming. And the choices we make of how to become change our paths and shift the choices that then face us. If you go through this door, you will have these options. If you go through this door, you will have these options. You will always have options. But you are constrained by the choices you've made as to what your next choice gets to be. Tshuva is so potent because it is the ultimate assertion of agency. It is the statement that you are not the passive recipient of destiny or fate. You have a hand in shaping your future. And because we are all of us connected to everything else that is, it means that we each have a hand in shaping each other's future and the world's. And God is waiting to see what you're going to decide. And the person who trains themselves to make optimal choices, that's how I understand a bal tshuva, person who trains, and the only way to train yourself to make optimal choices is how? Making good choices. The more good choices you make, the more habitual it will become. When will it become easy? Um, Rabbi Spitz and I share a common Rav, Rabbi Simon Greenberg, who, when he was 90, was asked, at what point did it become natural to do mitzvot? And he said, I'll let you know. <laughs> All right. A bal tshuva is someone who habituates themselves to making the optimal choice. And I want to be clear what optimal choice means. Optimal choice means that choice which makes greater connection possible, greater compassion, greater justice, greater welcome, 
greater inclusion, that's the optimal choice. Notice that what that means is that what might be the optimal choice for me may not be the optimal choice for you. I can't know just by what you choose whether you made the optimal choice or not. You're the only one who knows that. But if we truly reach for the optimal choice, then we open doors for a future that would otherwise have become unattainable. And because of that, we stand in a place that even someone who was always the same tzaddik can't reach. It's not about habit. It's not about convention. It's not about external expectations. It's about being truly alive in each and every moment and grabbing for the most life-enhancing possibility that offers itself at the moment. Thank you very much. I am happy to answer questions, hear brief comments, um, realizing that you have to live with each other and I will drive home at the end of this. So, um, and then of course we can talk afterwards. But if there are any, any questions or comments now, um, Jack. Please uh, explain the situation with your grandfather, just the Chodah, and God's love in that situation. Will I repeat the question? Yes. Um, this is, you're, you're jumping into a conversation that Jack and I have been having for 20 years, um, which is, would you say a word about God's love in that train station at Chenstahova? Which I think was actually Jack saying it wasn't there. Um, so here's what I want to say. Um, first of all, you have to invite me back for a separate talk because that's a bigger topic than I can do standing on one foot. That's always my first answer to Jack anyway. Um, the second thing I want to say, I will give you, I'm not going to evade that, I'm going to give you an answer. People misunderstand God's love because they misunderstand God's power. I don't believe in an all-powerful coercive God. If I thought that God had the power, that everything that happens happens for a reason, and everything that happens reflects God's will, then it's pretty clear God is a Nazi. Right? But I don't believe God is a Nazi, and I don't believe our tradition portrays God as a Nazi. So what I have to give up is the idea that everything that happens, God wants to happen. And what I have to say is that in creating the world, God created the world truly, which is the world has agency too. And the world makes choices that God cannot interfere with. I do not believe that God can break the rules. I don't think God can. Because notice here, it's not enough that God could but chose not to. That still leaves you with a monster God. Right? I don't believe in that God. So in the same way with Jacob's autism, I don't believe in a God who chose to give him that to teach us all a lesson or could have interfered but didn't. I believe that genetics spills out a certain way and that's the way that nature works. But what I do believe is that at each and every moment, at every level of creation, 
God is inviting us to make optimal choices that we could not make without God's direction. So I think God was absolutely at that train station, and I think God was made manifest by my Zadie Zadie. And that that was the voice of God in the midst of the whirlwind and the terror. I don't believe in heaven's opening up except through our choices. That is an excellent question. And on one level, the answer is it's ridiculous, right? Someone who chooses the right thing a hundred times ought to get a higher score than someone who chose the wrong thing 94 times and then the last six times made the right choice. But life is not a quiz and that's not how the score is kept. So I think what the tradition is assuming is that if someone has never done anything wrong, it means they've lived their life safe. It means they never tried anything risky. It means they've never grown. And static is not what God wants you to be. God wants you to be truly alive, which means risking, growing, getting yourself out of your comfort zone, and surpassing yourself. Here's another little tidbit I will leave you with. I do not believe that God is the unchanging one. I believe that God is the self-surpassing one. And we are made in God's image when we also are self-surpassing. I think that's what the tradition is saying. So I don't think they're insulting the normal tzaddik. I think what they're meaning to do is elevate the people who are flawed. And by the way, who are those people, the people who are flawed? Everyone. So the reality is, I think what they're actually saying, although they can't say it out loud, is there is no such thing as a perfect tzaddik, except conceptually. So you can imagine someone being a perfect tzaddik, but that's only because you're not that person, right? And anyone who claims to be a perfect tzaddik, never let them alone with your daughters. <laughs> Based on, on the presentation today, I'm wondering if you could talk a little about what we have as our current service model through the, through the different denominations and whether or not that service model actually helps to achieve what you've given us as our direction for the biologists. Question is, based on what I've just said, um, A, do services deliver us to that? Uh, or they themselves part of the problem, and then the way the different denominations address them, how does that line up? So I'm gonna say something you probably wouldn't expect to hear from the dean of a conservative rabbinical school that produces conservative rabbis. I think denominations mean less and less with each passing year. I think it's like the smiling Cheshire cat. Um, you know, what really matters is what's going on in this particular congregation. Who are these people? How do they treat each other? 
Uh, what kind of prayer service do they want to engage in? I made the heretical suggestion years ago that we refer to synagogues as by the denomination that they belong to, but do not refer to the people in the synagogue by those denominations. Right. Of course, I was a rabbi in Mission Viejo for 10 years, and everyone who was a member of Con Congregation Elat was actually a practicing conservative Jew 100%, <laughs> but I'm told that not every conservative synagogue is like that. Um, so I was probably, it was the exception to the rule. Um, so, you know, people joined Congregation a lot because a whole variety of reasons. Some did it because of inertia. Some did it because the gallons were there. Some did it because they liked the chazan. Some did it because they liked hating the chazan. Some did it because <laughs> they liked rabbits and arts. And, you know, there, are, there are a lot of reasons to join because their neighbors joined, because their havara was a man, whatever they joined. Right? It didn't mean that every single member said, you know, I'm compelled by the ideology and the doctrines of conservative Judaism, uh, and that's why I'm joining. I mean, there were four people who joined for that reason. Um, and they were the most annoying congregants. Right? So I think what you can say is that a synagogue is affiliated, but not necessarily the members of the synagogue. So there, I want to say something now that's going to um, be trickier than all of that, um, and that is anything can get you to tshuva, and anything can become an impediment to tshuva. And it has nothing to do with the service, and it has to do with what you bring to the service. So you sit in a yoga, a meditation, you go to the beach, that can be the Yetzer Hara just as easily as Kol Nidre can. And Kol Nidre can be the voice of the Yetzer Hara just as easily as anything else. Right? Again, what I want to leave you with is you can't know from the outside what something means because meaning is always about relationship. There are always two partners. If there aren't two partners, there's no meaning. So you can't film the synagogue service and then say, oh yes, on a chuvometer, that gets an 8.5. I just made that up. Right? You can't do it that way. You have to say, am I coming to this with the right openness to allow it to move me in the direction I need to move. And that's really something you have to take responsibility for. So, you know, there are wonderful services in every congregation, and I will tell you none of them are perfect. And none of them can possibly meet the needs of everyone in the congregation because no service can meet all of your needs for four hours, even just you or me, or anyone. Right. So, so here's what you can bring. You can bring a charitable heart. The rabbi, the cantors, the officers, the con they're doing the best they can. They did not do it deliberately to offend you. They did not do it to make you aggravated. No, it's not that they're intentionally, spiritually benighted. No, they are not trying to bore you to death. Right. No, they're actually trying to do 
the best they can with this actual community to make a moving and compelling service that will meet most people's needs most of the time. Um, I'm now going to recommend something that only as a non-congregational rabbi am I allowed to recommend. Bring a book. Oh, I have some recommendations. <laughs> this year, the book you should bring is Caleb's Crossing by Geraldine Brooks. It's a fictional account of an actual historical event, which is the first Native American to attend Harvard University in 1657. And it's told through the voice of the daughter of the Protestant minister who converts him. And Geraldine Brooks is an amazing writer. It's a deeply spiritual book. If that one doesn't work for you, bring the elegance of the hedgehog. If you already read it, that doesn't count, sorry. Um, Right. I'm not saying you should ignore the service, but if you find yourself just turning pages and sitting and standing in a mechanistic, meaningless way, then you need to take a mental cleansing. Right? And one way to do that is bring some, if, if poetry moves you, bring poetry. Right? Bring, bring whatever it is that lets you do a kind of cleaning and centering and ready to start again. Sometimes that might mean walking outside and taking a little walk around the block. Whatever it takes, you don't get rewarded for hours clocked in the seat. Right? The service is an opportunity to open you to being broken because it is only in the being broken that you regain the capacity to grow. And that's what being alive is. There's nothing as whole as a heart that's broken. So if your heart isn't ripped open, you need to rip it open. Find whatever it is that will do that for you and do that. Great. So um, this is another one of those things. I mean, the problem with talking religion, um, well, there are two problems. The first is the line between spiritual and insipid is virtually non-existent. <laughs> um, so it's easy to just say nonsense things and sound really wise and really deep. <laughs> I've made a career out of that. <laughs> and the second thing is everything is connected to everything else. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you now a talk on the soul that would itself take two hours, but I can't. So, so I will just give you the highlights. The highlights are, if you mean by soul that there is inert matter, and that inert matter is animated by a non-physical substance, something that doesn't occupy space or time, but is nonetheless real. In fact, it's more real than the stuff that occupies space and time. I don't believe in that at all. I also don't believe that the Bible believes in that at all, and I don't believe the rabbis believed in that at all. 
That comes out of Aristotelian and Platonic metaphysics. It's entirely Greek, and it has to do with Greek metaphysics that we now know to be false, right? They, they made those choices based on the physics of their time, very educated, I'm not here insulting them. Aristotle and Plato are two of the people I hope to meet in heaven. Um, I hope I speak Greek by the time I get there. <laughs> um, but through no fault of their own, their physics is 2,500 years old, and it was wrong. So um, we know stuff about the world they didn't know, and one of the things we know is that the world doesn't divide into two kinds of substances, one of which occupies space and time and one of which doesn't. Right? That mistake got magnified and augmented by Descartes, uh, but, but it, was, it was another mistake. It was a case of putting Descartes before divorce. <laughs> You're welcome. You know that's going to be the only thing you remember from this whole talk. So, so here's what I want to say. The one thing I need to correct in what you said is I didn't say things aren't real. What I said is substances are not real. What is real is process. Anything that is not a process is not real. Everything is process. That means everything is in a constant state of flux, a constant state of change across time. That is true for God, that is true for us, and the word soul, if it's going to be useful at all, has to mean those aspects of our thinking, feeling, temperament that stay with us and grow with us across time. Okay? So I don't think you have a soul. And I don't think your soul is separate from your body. I think what your soul is, is the totality of everything you. All right? Okay. One more question. Oh, it's near. Okay, so, so two, two statements. Um, I don't think in Hebrew, I'm, I'm gonna answer, I'll tell you what she said by answering what she said and then, then you'll, you'll figure it out. Um, heart and, and mind, heart and brain are not separate in the Bible, right? So if you mean the organ you use for thinking, the biblical word for that, is lev. If you mean the organ that you use for feeling, the biblical word for that is lev, maybe also moach too. Um, so I take that as my starting point. I think as in so many times, the Torah actually is way ahead of religious people. Right? So the Torah is telling us, don't think about thinking and feeling as two dichotomized, separate things. They're not. They're different aspects of one phenomenon. 
and they grow together. What you think changes what you feel. How you feel changes how you perceive. That changes what you think. It's, it's a spiral that feeds itself. Okay? And the liturgy that Nira quoted is where we ask God's forgiveness for the sins we are aware of and the sins we don't know, what we know and what we don't know. Um, there's, there's a nonsense way to understand that, which is what I think most Jews do with most of the or anyway. Um, what does it mean? I mean, there's that email blast. Dear Ribono Shalom, Please forgive me for any ways that I might have offended you in the past year. I think God is just as annoyed by that as I am when I get it on my email. Right? So I don't interpret the Machsor as saying, oh, by the way, God, all those crappy things I did that I'm unaware of, just you know, clean that off of my account too while you're in there. I don't think that's what it means. I think what it means is a recognition of our own humility that we are never fully aware of the implications of our behavior. And we can never be fully aware of the ways that we have fallen short or harmed others. And what we are pledging ourselves to is to sincerely regretting it once we find out about it. Um, so what we're pledging is an attitude um, of not being defensive and not responding by saying, no, you're wrong, and why oh, it's really your fault, that our first response, the one we're going to try to hold to, is, all right, I will try very hard to look at this from your perspective and be open to the very real possibility that I actually didn't really yet atone for everything. There's another one to add to the list. Thank you very much for the chance to learn together. <laughs>